2: What? <laughs>
0: Going to do is i'm going to read a line to you from an opera i want you to give me that line back in the language in which the opera was originally written and for a bonus 250 uh, you can sing it i'm stanley Specter.
2: there is the story of a boy genius Willa
0: thomas kidd Jean baptiste
2: and the game show host and jimmy gator
0: live from burbank california
2: first question for 25. this french playwright and actor joined the Bejar troupe of actors
0: and the ex-boy genius i'm chris I used to be smart, now I'm just stupid. There is the story of the dying man. I'm Earl Partridge. I have a son, you know. You do? Uh, find him. I'm Frank
2: T.J. Mackey. His lost son.
0: What did he say? Because I am not going to take care of him. What does he want? And
2: the dying man's wife. I'm
0: Linda Partridge. I took care of
2: him through this, Alan. What now, then? Me and him. Do you understand? There's no one else. No one else! The caretaker. Hello. I'm Phil Parma. See, this is uh, the scene of the movie where you help me out. Welcome to Rewatchability. It's a podcast on the Entertainment One Podcast Network. I'm Robert Leronde. With me, as always, is...
0: J.M. McNabb.
2: And today we have a very special episode, and we have a special guest, but before we get into that, first of all, we want to thank our Patreons. Those are the people who give us a little bit of money each month, and that helps us keep the podcast going, and in return you get... Some things like the podcast early and ad-free and sometimes some bonus content. So if you'd like to become a Patreon, go to patreon.com rewatchability and you can donate there. So today uh, we have a guest. His name is Shane Burley.
1: Hey, everybody. Long you know, longtime listener. First time appear.
2: <laughs> and you are uh, a writer and a journalist. What, what do you write about?
1: Well, if you like the comedy stylings deal? of uh, Rewatchability, you'll love my essays on fascism and terrorism. Um, what? <laughs> I, I, I write for a bunch of places, NBC, Al Jazeera, Daily Beast. I write a lot about kind of the far right and right-wing politics, social movements, that kind of stuff.
2: Right. Yeah, I, I saw a bunch of your articles last year when everything was really, really scary. And, uh, and I... You know, also noticed that you like some
1: of our tweets, so you know it seemed like a natural fit. Uh, I, I tweeted at you and said, "Please have me on." That's how I run most of my career. I just tweet at people and and ask to come places.
2: Well, it works. <laughs> and if anybody else, you know, would like to do the same thing, I think we'd like David Lynch if he wants to tweet at us and uh, invite himself on the podcast, or William Friedkin. Any of those, anybody really, we'll take anybody. But thanks for joining us. Oh, you, you you have some books as well,
1: right? What are your books called? Oh yeah. Um. So most recent book is called uh, "Why We Fight: Essays on Fascism, Resistance, and Surviving the Apocalypse." That came out just a few months ago, back in April. An earlier book, "Fascism Today: What It Is and How to End It," about the fun stuff we've lived through in the last four <laughs> or five years.
2: <laughs> All very essential in this time, and well worth a read, I'm sure. So. Today, we are talking about Magnolia, Paul Thomas Anderson's 1999 film starring Tom Cruise and like 50 guys. Shane, this was your idea. You brought this to us. Why were you thinking about Magnolia?
1: Well, I was trying to think of movies that made a huge impact on me when I was young uh, and something that I haven't actually seen in a long time. So I actually didn't know how this would stand up. And it was one of those ones where you see kind of snippets or you see pop culture references to it. And, you know, when thinking back to it, I didn't remember this movie being like so bananas all the way through. And so I wanted to check take it back. I think I'll talk about this throughout it, but it was much stranger and more intense than I remembered it.
2: Right, okay, all right. And are you like a big Paul Thomas Anderson fan? Do you consider yourself like a, like a fanboy? Some
1: people I are. I was, yeah. And you know, I don't think we mentioned this before, but I mean, this, this movie made, I am, I should, I should say, but I was okay. especially then. Um, right. This movie made a huge impact on me when I was young. I went on to go to film school. I have a film FFA. I, I used to teach film. And this was one of the movies that was such a big moment for me when I was a teenager that it kind of set me on that course. Um, right. One where I read the screenplay when trying to learn to write screenplays. It was one that made a huge, huge impact at the time.
0: Oh, wow.
2: Nice. What about you, Jam? When was the first time that you saw Magnolia?
0: I saw it uh, in the theater. I probably had a, a similar experience as uh, Shane. We're probably around the same age. I saw it as a teenager, went to film school not long after. <laughs> um, and yeah, I know. I remember loving it. I think that was the first year I did like a top 10 list for the high school newspaper Mm. uh, because I went to high school in a late 90s WB teen drama, apparently. (laughs) Uh, And I yeah, I I loved it. And uh, I think I saw it twice in the theater. And then I maybe watched it once. That's like eight hours of your time. I know. You know, that was the weirdest thing watching it now because I had to watch it in two sittings. Right. Because, like, that was – the nostalgia for me was not the movie. It was just like, oh, the the time I had (laughs) to go see this movie twice for fun. But, yeah, so I – yeah, I I just remember, like, really loving it, really being that year. You know, I I know there are even, like, podcasts dedicated to the year 1999 movies that came out. But I remember that being, like, such – yeah, for people our age who are like just starting to get into movies in that same way, or, or examine movies a, a bit more critically, like to have all of those great films come out in '99 was such a big deal, and kind of spoiled sure. you in a way because, like, it sucks. In 2000 <laughs> was such a bad year. Right thereafter. <laughs> well, they yeah they 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 blew it all in '99. <laughs> like there was nothing. There's no gas left in the tank after that. Um, uh. I'm not surprised. But, uh, yeah, so it, it was it was just an exciting time to, like, be in the movies. I'm trying to remember what Magnolia was, where it ranked on my list at the time. I think it was, like, number th- – I, I can't remember that either. I think it might have been Election. Okay. But I don't really remember. Being John Malkovich, maybe? Yeah, I, went, oh. I, I looked
1: up uh, Roger Ebert's top ten list for that year, and it was Being John Malkovich was number one.
0: Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. Wow. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, I, I remember loving it. What, what about you, Rob?
2: Yeah, I didn't see this right away. I guess I had a little bit of a different experience from you guys. I feel like I had already seen Punch Drunk Love and Boogie Nights before I saw this. And then I saw it a little bit later. I first sort of knew Magnolia as the movie with the frogs because they referenced it on The Critic. Remember that show?
0: <laughs> I love that show.
2: <laughs> it was the best. And so when I found out that's what this movie was, then I was bored because I needed to get the reference. But I remember it being... It was one of those movies that people talked about. Like, some people, it was really highly praised by some, but also other people thought it was, like, bad. Like, it was pretentious and awful and Tom Cruise is bad and it's way too long. And... I remember it being pretty good. It's not one of the ones that like really stuck with me at the time. The characters, are some of them are pretty alienating. But I definitely remember feeling like any sort of Paul Thomas Anderson cinematic experience is a experience worth delving into and absorbing in its full manner. So I hadn't seen it since then either. I probably hadn't thought about it in yeah in a long time earlier in the pandemic i rewatched boogie nights so i don't know yeah i was i was game to watch it again but yeah it's not one of those ones that
1: necessarily made a big impact on me i, I think one of the big impacts from when i saw it i could talk about this in different scenes but i i the first time i saw it i saw it by myself And there were such huge audience reactions. There was like people kind of standing up and gasping. Some people walked out. uh, People kind of like sob crying. And it felt like because the movie, I mean, we'll talk about this. It's so melodramatic at times. And then to have that kind of reflected all around me, it just kind of ended up sticking with me for so long.
0: Do you think everyone in the theater was, like, interconnected in some way? Like, <laughs> that guy's dad used to work for this person and... Oh, wow. I, I do remember, you know, talking about the frogs and, and you, you know, your entry point to the movie being, like, a joke about the frog thing. Like, I do remember that being a big... uh plus for me of the movie was the shock of that the surprise Mm -hmm. of that like not knowing that was coming and it just being so audacious i think if i'm remembering right i think i read reviews at the time that that kind of danced around it and just said something big happens at the end
1: i found what read reviews i couldn't find one that kind of revealed it You know, yeah, that had come out at the time, and I remember that being kind of a tightly held. I guess it was earlier days of the internet, so it's a little easier to hide that kind of stuff.
0: (laughs) Yeah, no, totally, but yeah, it's such like, yeah, it's it's amazing that they did kind of keep that secret in a way that, like, I remember like the audience when I saw it, like all kind of like turning and looking at each other, and (laughs) no one knew quite what to think.
2: Yeah, it is such like a big scene and so inexplicable. But uh, I mean, maybe we should just get into it because yeah, yeah. there do, is a lot of rundown. movie to cover.
0: Oh my god, we're gonna have to set aside a good two hours and fifty minutes.
2: I have I had to make a chart of the characters. I oh mean, no. I, it looks like this. It looks like I don't know if you can see. It looks like the Zodiac killers. Uh, <laughs> like, oh god, let's say Glenn confession Beck, like, note
1: like board or something. <laughs>
2: It's it's crazy. I mean, there are so many different <laughs> characters in here. They are all interconnected. And yeah, there, there's all this stuff that happens. But I guess it starts with Ricky J telling us about a bunch of old timey coincidences. Like there's this killer and the killer's names are the same name as the people. And then there's this boy who uh, gets shot as he's committing suicide by his parents. Also, Patton Oswald gets stuck in a tree in a scuba suit. <laughs> that was shocking.
1: Yeah. Did you look these up to, to see which ones were real?
2: Well, I did see that some of them were, were real. The, the London murder one, where their names are the same as the thing, that was real. And I think also... The the one with the kid who jumps out the window and gets shot—that's not real, but it's based off a, a famous sort of uh like a, like a legalism test. Or something. Yeah, it's that's like they teach right.
1: lawyers: like, how would you prosecute something like this?
2: It's kind of like the yeah. trolley test thing that's so popular and right now.
0: I think it was like someone had presented it as a, like a, le- a legal hypothetical, and then that presentation was like posted on the internet. And it be, kind of became an online hoax, like an early, early online hoax. Like oh, really? Early 90s. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, I mean, there is a whole bunch of just like spooky shit that has happened, and we're asked whether or not it's all coincidence.
0: Oh, here's another crazy coincidence. I think I said this on the podcast once before, but one day I was walking down the street and I passed a patio, and sitting on the patio eating soup was Ricky J. Oh, my God. It's another, you know, we're all connected. Is it there a Bible verse that
1: you could cite about this?
0: <laughs> which which is the passage about soup? <laughs> the magician
1: <laughs> <Yeah>. eating soup. <laughs> <laughs> but do, do you see the first Bible reference though in in this sequence? It's the uh, was it the, the rope? The, yeah, it's the cords oh, the that are off on the left hand side of the roof. Um, that was it. Yeah, I did notice more of
0: those this time. That was another th- I didn't mention this when we were talking about when we saw it, but that was another thing, like that this was a movie that had all those hidden things you notice the second time around, like the Bible verse and, and not, you know, being exposed to that through like rewatching the movie and not the Internet necessarily at the time was exciting.
1: <laughs> right. Well, so I, I, they said there was a hundred references to the Bible verse in the movie. Oh, and wow. so I went through trying to count a few of them. I counted, like, four or five, but when I looked up, like, the they were pretty loose. Like, they're pieces of dialogue right. that supposedly reference it. I was like, this oh, feels man. like a big stretch to say that some of these are really references to it. Well, <sighs> isn't
2: there one of them, like... The title Magnolia has two A's, one in the second position and one in the eighth position in the Bible verse. Is it it's Exodus eight,
0: two? Yeah, that's it. That's getting a little too zodiac killer for me. (laughs) I did read also that Paul Thomas Anderson said like he it wasn't all just like him, like he told his production designer what he was doing, and the production designer was like Oh great! Mm-hmm. Like and so they were just shoehorning the eight and the two into everything, and in ways that that he didn't even notice right away necessarily. I mean, that's, that's a fun way to
1: mean. keep yourself busy at work. Yeah, <laughs> like, like make a
0: checklist.
2: <laughs> it's better than putting dicks in everything, like little mermaid animators or whatever.
1: Well, I mean, that's, that's like what craft people window. do. Like, there's also—did you see the painting? I mean, maybe we'll talk about this later. But there, I mean, there's the the flower paintings in most of the living rooms and there's sort of like mm-hmm. magnolia color schemes and so on. I mean, there mm-hmm. was just there was a lot when I started kind of paying attention to it. Um, in almost every scene, there had been something that was clearly placed there.
0: Yeah, oh. maybe we'll talk about this later. But like the Freemason stuff, I never noticed that before. No, not when until my rights. <laughs>
2: Anyway, we can't talk about that, brothers. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but there, so there's all these characters, right? We have... Let's start with, oh, William H. Macy. He plays Donnie, the quiz kid. Oh, maybe we should start with... It all sort of revolves around this television show. This television show called Kids, What the Fuck Did They Know? Or something like that. And... The host of this is Philip Baker Hall, right? And there's like this little kid and all of this other stuff. But William H. Macy, he used to be the smart kid way back in the day. But now his life has turned out sort of pathetic, right? He, he's getting fired from his job. He is getting elective oral surgery to get braces to impress this bartender. And it, we, Look, we've all been
1: there. Yeah, and that's why I have perfect teeth. I, I mean, like you know, if I, when I had braces, I didn't assume that all the braces people liked my braces. Like they were drawn to me because I also had braces. You know, like this was a really strange reaction. It is I, a bit
2: I, of a leap of logic.
0: I do love that though. Like it's just you know that's where he funnels his, you know, his efforts. It's it just makes it all the more tragic
1: and mm-hmm. sad.
2: But, of course, he has a romantic rival in Henry Gibson, who is also competing for the affections of this bartender and seems to have, like, a little bit more money to work with. And this sort of, like, sends Donnie into a crisis, a a downward spiral and he ends up, like, having this whole confrontation with Henry Gibson, and they're quoting all these people, and, you know, he's, he's saying, I used to be smart, I used to be stupid. It's really sad and pathetic. The <laughs> sort of stuff that William H. Macy is amazing at. He is the best at being sad and pathetic in all of its he's different facets. it's especially
1: good. Of the, of the many speechifying moments that this movie has, his may be the best. Yeah. Where yeah. he kind of says almost like these non sequiturs that are exactly what the character is thinking with, with not even a shred of subtlety. When he does it, it has this kind of really human quality to it. Totally. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. We also have Philip Baker the, Hall. The H stands for humanity. <laughs> <laughs>
2: We also have Philip Baker Hall. He is the host of The Quiz Show. And he has found out that he is dying of cancer. And he only has like two months to live. And he wants to make things right with his daughter, Claudia. And, you know, he goes to her apartment and she is sleeping with some guy and there's drugs on the table. And he wants to talk to her, but she doesn't want anything to do with him. He She screams at him to get out. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's sort of sad because he's just trying to be a, a dad and she, you know, it's sad, but he's regretful, but he's still got to do this show. Also, he's a raging alcoholic. He says to his wife on the phone, like, yeah, I'm going on in a few minutes. I got to get drunk.
1: Yeah. You know? it, that lie I remember sticking out to me that I have a lot of drinking to do. And I remember like when I was young and I first thought, I was like, am I hearing this right? Like how much drinking how do you have to pack talk. in for a period of time? Is it like you have 30 minutes to do all the drinking? <laughs> that's
0: how that's how Pat Sajak used to do it.
1: <laughs> Pat and Vanna before each show. Yep.
2: <laughs> but on this show, it's a game show that pits kids versus adults, and there are all these adults, including Luis Guzmán, and- who,
0: who, who I, I my favorite part of this movie may be the fact that Luis Guzmán is seemingly playing himself.
1: Yeah, no, yeah. he's credited as himself. So yeah. <laughs> That's great. He's bringing his it's whole self perfect. to the role. It's perfect.
2: Uh, but there's also a little kid who is sort of the person who basically the whole show spins around because he's like the he's the really smart kid. He's the uh, prodigy who who seems to know everything, you know, from from opera to more opera. He's he's the really smart one. And the other two kids they don't demonstrate any intelligence whatsoever. Like, there's one kid that's just sort of a bully and one kid that's sort of full of herself.
1: So do you still have to do homework? Not as so much as I used to. Ever since we
0: started, I haven't really gone to school much. I've had so many auditions. I don't have regular classes anymore. What do you do? They just let me have my own study time, my own reading time in the library. That's pretty cool. Do you have an agent, Stanley? No. You should get one. I'm serious. You could get a lot of stuff out of this. Like what? What do you mean, like what? Like endorsements and shit? Return? Why did Cynthia? You can get free stuff from people that want you to endorse their product commercials, sitcom, and MOW or something. What's MOW? Hello, movie of the week.
2: But this kid, he's really special. He seems like he's bright and he really loves just like learning. And he asks about the weather station at the TV station because he's curious. Problem is his dad fucking sucks.
1: Uh, he's like the only non-complicated <laughs> character in the movie. It's like you see him like reading like a guide to buying a new car, and he's like, berating his son <laughs> to continue. You know, yeah.
0: he's reading like a brochure called "How to Emotionally Abuse Your Kid" <laughs>
2: <laughs> by Jamie Spears. <laughs> oh, <laughs> sorry. Too
0: soon. Uh, Too soon. She's free. No, yeah, that's what I was freed. about to say. That's true. <laughs> it's you're right. It's not soon enough. Not suited up. But can we, just for a minute, talk about okay. the Freemason thing? Because this is where it crops okay. up. And I certainly didn't notice that the first time.
2: You're going to have to explain it to me, because I'm not actually a Freemason. Well,
0: it's... Peek in. It's when Philip Baker Hall's about to go on, and Ricky Jay, who plays a character in it too, is who is maybe also the narrator, I guess? It's always the weird how hand. he plays
2: this like character who may or may not be like omniscient,
0: Right, yeah, He is God, and but he's also a Freemason because he's got a big Freemason ring on his finger. Um, and then when uh, Philip Baker Hall's about to go on, he says, like, the Freemason like sign off, basically. Oh. I, can't, I can't remember what it was, but then Philip Baker Hall's like, "Don't start that shit now, or something <laughs> like that." And then there's like one of the symbols in the game show set is like a, a Freemason thing, and then there is a book. And one of the shots of the, the genius kid reading all these books are laid out on the table. And one of them is like a guide to Freemasonry. And the last name of the author is also spelled the same as Tom Cruise's character. So Whoa. there's something going on here. And I'm not sure what it is. Uh, I, I
1: couldn't find anything about it. So I kind of felt like maybe his dad was just like, you know, in Masonic Lodge 72 or something. And that this was like a kind of a yeah. It's. Yeah.
0: I think it's, yeah, just probably a bit of fun. Or, you know, it's the key to unlocking this whole movie. Absolutely.
2: It's, pro- it's probably not that. Freemasons out there who want to invite us into your sacred rites just so that we can find out what this movie is about. Please.
1: Please. <laughs> uh, I, I'm good. Like the insert okay. at the beginning of Mulholland Drive or something. Right. <laughs> <laughs>
0: this also came out the same year as Eyes Wide Shut, which wasn't that full of, you know, Mason. Right. State. Oh, yeah. Mm. It's all connected. Well,
2: yeah. I well, that also features Tom Cruise, who is a character in this movie. He plays Frank TJ Mackey, and he is like this. Uh, how do I describe? He's like a self-help dating guru, pickup incel, up artist guy, pickup artist. That's the word. Yeah. And you know, he's putting on this like big conference to all these. Uh, you know, sad, pathetic dudes. And he, he, he says things like, uh, what, what is
1: it? Is it?
0: I don't think you should say any of the things he says. (laughs) Just
1: this was maybe the biggest one that stood out to me. I kind of was waiting for it, but I remember the being sort of like, I don't know, kind of kind of a lovable like foil or something when I was, young. right. And it doesn't read like that at all anymore. I think, you know, like we now have like incel murders and things like that. And also Tom Cruise is, Performance is kind of tied to Scientology now, so it doesn't come across mm. nearly as neutral. But yeah, right oh, yeah. from the beginning, I was like, "This is reading way more sinister and way uglier than I remember it." Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: I remember just being also kind of like confused by it. Like, I didn't totally understand like that this was a thing. I'm I still don't totally right. understand how it's a thing. But I guess he was based on like a real guy who actually wrote books and had infomercials
1: he was based on this guy ross jeffries i'd look this up who uh sort of was like the first guy to do these like workshops and stuff and he has
2: some great advice for how to get women (laughs) let me tell you
1: i mean it's 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 sort of like the self-help version of brainwashing it's like these are techniques to confuse women to like you and that kind of thing right and like there's like youtube videos and stuff of them but like I, i read some interviews where he was watching all those videos and that was kind of how they how they got the whole seek and destroy program
0: yeah. I remember it being like a uh, gross at the time, but still thinking, yeah, his performance was so charismatic, but then mm. also like watching it now and like, yeah, having it, having, you know, I, I certainly didn't think of it as, uh, you know, you know it, it was laying the track for like the incel movement that is so toxic and upsetting now. Like I, it, it certainly has imp- different implications watching it as an adult 20 years later. That's, Absolutely. I mean, it's, it is a bold performance. He's also, it's weird that he's like to watch it now having it be like, cause I remember like part of it was like, he's playing this disgusting character, but you know, he's, he's also acting so like flamboyantly and, and oddly and, and uh, you know he's just chewing the scenery. But then, like a few years later, that's just what Tom Cruise was like. like <laughs>
1: he... <laughs> I, well, I remember this was like the the Cruise Breaking Bad, like it was eyes wide shut. And then he grew his hair long. That was a big thing. There was all these like you know mm-hmm. magazine covers with you know Cruise with long hair. And then they did the Mission Impossible 2. So I was right. like, this is this must be the new era of Cruise. It was kind of like the, the Cruise essence, right? Uh, yeah, because
0: yeah. he was nominated for an Oscar for this, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, I think he lost to. Um... No, I'm forgetting for, um, Cider House Rules. Oh, Michael (laughs) Caine?
0: Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah. That sounds right. Yeah. I think there's something like a little like how, you know, I I don't think Tom Cruise would say most of those things, but like the performance read more to me, like the real life persona of Tom Cruise than it it probably did in 99. Yeah, absolutely. And... We find out that he, the Tom Cruise
2: character, is the long-lost son of Jason Robards, who is also dying of cancer. He's, like, very close to the end. He's being looked after by... Philip Seymour Hoffman, and, you know, he's just about to slip away. He's got a wife, Julianne Moore, but he wants to get in touch with his son, who he abandoned many years ago. And the the woman who is interviewing Tom Cruise, uh, her name is Guinevere, he, she is, like, breaking down his, the sort of mythology of Frank McKay, and she discovers Mackie. all of this. Yeah, oh, Mackie. She discovers all this stuff about his past, like he was lying about his father being dead, obviously, and about his mother being alive. Because, in fact, we find out that his mother died of cancer after Jason Robards abandoned them, and he had to look after her, and then he was finished being raised by another person. So, But he doesn't want that to obviously get out there because that would, you know, clash with his image. Also, he has some other internal things going on. So he like stonewalls the woman and then at the end of the interview,
1: you know, says some misogynistic things to her. It's not cool. I sort of feel like that's where the the part of the performance that stands up or not maybe stands up but that stuck with me now that's sort of where it begins he kind of freezes and stares at her for this period of time and then tries to go back on stage and is like unsuccessful at keeping going Mm -hmm. oh yeah it's so good yeah now he loses his shit and he's definitely
2: lost his composure i i love and hate that shot when he's like getting up to leave and the camera doesn't move with him so it's just like Tom Cruise's crotch across from the woman's face. Yeah. It's uh it's very effective but also uh not not comfortable. We also have Philip Seymour Hoffman. He is the nurse of Jason Robards and his parts, I mean, first of all, it's great to see Philip Seymour Hoffman and uh he's definitely missed, but uh his character is the nurse who's tracking down Frank And the way that he does it is by ordering some porno mags from a delivery service and then finding the number for the sales line for Frank and then sort of getting all those people to sort of try to get in touch with him. Yeah. If if the
0: Internet was more sophisticated in 99, this movie... Could have been an hour and twenty minutes. Like there's a lot of scenes of people just obtaining information. You
1: yeah, know, he, he's also the only sort of understated character in the whole thing. And not that like that the characters aren't kind of fully formed, but they are a little bigger than life. There's a melodrama aspect to it. Like mm-hmm. they feel kind of big. Except for Philip Seymour Hoffman, who's kind of quiet, who has this kind of, like, these yeah. quiet, like, uh, crying bouts throughout it that are really, really subtle in comparison to the kind of like big explosions that come from everybody else. Well, he's
2: totally. the only character who doesn't have, like, some sort of miserable backstory that we know of. I mean, maybe it was shot and not put in there. Maybe it was written. But,
0: oh, you didn't see the uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman as a serial killer cut? <laughs> <laughs>
2: I mean that would tie it all together.
0: Yeah. <laughs> no, he. I think he's kind of like the heart and soul of the movie. Really, his yeah. performance is it's just so good. And you're you're right, Shane. There. The, some of the performances are just so big. I, I was watching it with my wife, and she's like, every, or most of the female characters in this movie are just like
1: screaming maniacs Crime machines for 90% of the movie. I mean, I, by about 10 minutes in, I was like, I felt like it was really, the energy was really high, and it just kept going. It never kind of let off, you know? Yeah, yeah. Which it was, Absolutely. every scene was escalating, and it did that for three hours, and with like those performances, they were so huge. You know, it kind of felt almost like a, like a Cohen's Brothers movie where like the characters were maybe a little bigger than life, but still relatable, almost like totems in a way. It mm-hmm. also
0: kind of felt like talking to someone at a party who just did a ton of coke for three <laughs> hours, <laughs> which is weird because yep. the end of the movie is kind of like. The the kind of resolution is like, hey, a character might stop doing a lot of coke. And it's like, really? (laughs) Because she could have made Magnolia. (laughs) She could have written and directed Magnolia had she continued (laughs) doing way too much coke.
2: Yeah. And the person you're speaking about is uh, Philip Baker Hall's daughter, Claudia, played by Melora Walters. And she... Uh, addicted to drugs, and she gets a visit by John C. Riley, who plays this questionable cop. And, you know, we first see him sort of uncovering a um, a murder uh, that we sort of... That just sort of gets left (laughs) by the wayside.
1: (laughs) They really don't care about... Or the stolen gun. Or there's a a whole bunch of threads that thought it would come back, you know, with the frogs at some point.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. But uh, he... (laughs) He responds to a call at uh, Claudia's place because she's playing music very loudly, and also there was the thing before where she kicked her dad out, and he sort of uh, sort of insinuates himself into her life. He just uh, you know he invites himself in for a cup of coffee, and later invites her on a date, which she asks, "Isn't that illegal?" And he goes, "Yeah," and she goes, "All right." <laughs> Because she does.
1: We we also hear his tape from a dating service.
2: That's right. Where he's
1: maybe like the most earnest, you know, self-explanation you could have about how he's looking for love. And then that kind of carries. And there's this sort of these scenes where it's like he's, I don't know, maybe he's recording himself or it seems like he's talking to a documentary crew. It's the only character that really does that. But he kind of like narrates himself when he's alone.
2: Mm Yeah. Yeah. I just thought he was talking to himself. Because yeah, there's that like moment in the police car where it seems like yeah, he's like it's like he's on cops or something and then it shows the full vehicle and it's just, you know, an empty seat and his shotgun beside him.
0: But so, it is yeah, like it is uncomfortably aggressive the way he hits on the Malora Walters character. Yeah,
1: what is it?
0: Do you forget something? No. No, I'm I was I was wondering Man, oh, man, I, I feel like a bit of a scumbuck at doing this since I came here as an officer of the law and the situation and everything, but I feel like I'd be a fool if I didn't do something I really want to do, which is to ask you for a date.
1: You want to go on a date with
0: me? Please, yes.
2: <clears throat> well, is that illegal? Sort of. Then I'd like to go. What do you want to do?
0: I don't know. I hadn't, hadn't thought about it. You know what? That's not true. I have thought about it. I've, I've been thinking about asking you for a date since you opened the door. Really? Yeah. I thought you were flirting with me a little. Like that yeah. that would have been a twist is if you see in the back seat of his squad car he's got one of Tom Cruise's books. <laughs>
1: yeah. Yeah. That was something too that in a lot of the reviews they talked about he was sort of like the pure good person in the movie and I'm watching it now and I'm like this is actually really uncomfortable mm. behavior like re- like the way that they kind of he forces yeah. himself in there and kind of dominates and kind of mansplains every issue
0: and w- when we meet him he handcuffs a grandmother to a couch and then points a gun at her
2: <laughs> yeah yeah so you know yeah not so innocent this John C Riley cop character though he does have a cool stash and uh <laughs> Did I miss anybody? Is that everybody? Um, <laughs> anybody else? Um... Oh, I briefly mentioned Julianne Moore's character, but she's the one who has like most of the I mean, yeah, her character has like a lot of hysterics. She's like running around trying to get drugs for uh, Jason Robards, but also for herself, you know. Well, well, you're there. And she's, like, addicted to all of these pills and uh, psychiatric drugs. And she was only married to him because of the money, obviously, because she's a much younger woman. But then as he is slipping away, she decides that she loves him, and it tears her up inside. And uh, she tries to get her, her name taken out of the will. But uh, it's too late for that. And if she says that she doesn't want it, you know who gets the money? Tom Cruise, A, he's got enough, B, he's just going to spend it on Scientology crap.
1: <laughs> she seemed really concerned that he would get the money, and, and from the story that we're told, it didn't seem like Tom Cruise's character did anything wrong in the, with his parents. And so I wasn't understanding why she was so concerned about him getting money. Right, he had the gall to be abandoned by his father.
2: <laughs>
1: like her husband had said at one point, like, "No, Frank can't have anything." And I'm like, "So you bailed, and then like you know, thirty years down the line, no, no money either."
0: Yeah, yeah. that's true. Well, he is uh, very sleazy. Maybe they, maybe maybe she was like familiar with his persona and just turned off. I don't know. But th- but then the movie is kind of like at the end, getting the two of them to sort of grieve together.
1: Yeah, there was a lot. I remember at the time there was a lot of kind of unkind descriptions of her character and I actually kind of felt the most empathetic to her throughout it. And I kind of like there's a lot of these scenes where she kind of breaks down on other people. And in most of those scenes, you know, like after you know, having dealt with like the death of family members and stuff, I was like, No, I, I I kind of understand. How dare you call her lady? I do kinda of get that. <laughs> oh man, those pharmacists were so
0: yeah, you can't that's that's they teach you that in pharmacy school. You can't be like, So, uh what are you what are you using this for? Wait, you're gonna party <laughs> later? <laughs> like
2: they can't ask that. Let me tell you. <laughs> oh, okay. Sorry. <laughs> no, I don't. <laughs>
0: no, yeah, totally. Like, I, yeah, I get where she's coming from. But it is like of the of the big performances we've t- been talking about. Like hers is maybe the biggest. Um, yeah. But but I- like you said, like she's going through something terrible, and she's on a lot of medications. So like maybe that is exactly what she would be like in real life.
2: Yeah, it's possible. Uh also so meanwhile on the game show, Stanley, the kid who is the sort of uh prodigy, he needs to go to the bathroom. And uh Jam, I'm sure you know what this is like. Uh kids they always have to go to the bathroom. Oh yeah, I thought and- you meant
0: because I've peed myself. <laughs>
2: No. <laughs> I wasn't going to bring that up, but...
0: uh well, it's funny. When I was watching it, I, w- I did have to go to the bathroom and I was holding it. And then when that happened, I was like, I should really pause it and go to the bathroom.
1: <laughs> it was, you know, the third hour of the movie, so... Yeah. Yeah, that's that's fair. <laughs> but
2: yeah, he... he... He keeps telling the adults that he needs to go to the bathroom and they keep telling him to wait till the commercial break, even though like the show keeps pausing for Philip Baker Hall, who is either, you know, suffering from the effects of his sickness or just drunk. We OK, can't really tell. This is
0: the other crazy thing about this movie is this game show is for one thing, it's live which is, like, what is this, 1956? Like, why would this show be live? And secondly, it's a kids' game show in the 90s. Like, people would be slimed. There would be, like, Mm -hmm. some kind of crazy mascot.
1: Isn't this the same show that Jeff Foxworthy had? You know, where, like, you have a fifth grade. Oh, grader. aren't
0: you smiter, smarter than the
2: fifth
1: grader? Yeah, yeah. So I feel right, like they got right. the idea from this, and they just ran Do with it. Do
2: you think Jeff Foxworthy was watching Magnolia, and he was like, shit.
1: He might be a Freemason. <laughs> I don't know. Oh, my God.
2: He might be a Freemason.
0: <laughs> if you've got a gold ring on your finger and some kind of crazy oath... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No. I. Yeah. I did. Th- it was a weird kind of uh, old fashioned game show. Though I did read that Paul Thomas Anderson did work for a kids game show that had a similar yeah. premise. So.
2: Do you think that he made some kid pee himself? <laughs> and this movie is asking for forgiveness.
1: <laughs> but, but you you notice that like so so Bill Baker Hall collapses in the middle of it, and the kid has peed himself. And they, they, they stop it for a minute. They stop it for a few minutes and they say, is everyone good to go? No one changes. There's no change. Nothing happens. They just kind of restart the game show.
0: Yeah. That, I, at that point, it's, you know, the, guy, the kid's got to take some responsibility. Like, they, they shut things down for a good 15 to 20 minutes when he collapsed.
1: Like, you Well, his, his dad did scream at him for a while, so I don't yes. think he was going to go anywhere. <laughs> Yeah. You
0: know, and it, yeah. I mean if yeah, if that happened now, like everyone in the audience would be like on social media be like, shit is happening on this game show. <laughs> like the kid peed himself, the host <laughs> collapsed and started swearing at the producers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But all the
2: stories sort of progress. And then just as everything's feeling like it just couldn't get worse for fucking anybody, they they sing a little song. There's a little uh little Little musical interlude which uh I, it kind of like it's such a like release of tension when the amy man song starts playing it's finally like the first opportunity that you really have to like breathe a little in this movie because there's so many terrible things and everybody's just like drowning in their misery
1: hey, you know there, there's a lot of pieces of it that sort of draw attention to itself There's like, the little weather cards that, like, show mm-hmm. you that clearly you're going to be watching the weather soon for some reason. Or, like, you know, the kind of... There's all these, like, lines. like what are they, they keep talking about uh, the past. People have these kind of lines that seem to come out of nowhere. And sometimes literally looking directly at the camera when saying okay. them. And then, like, the song sort of felt like that there's times when like Amy Man music's playing and it's literally what the characters would likely be thinking without even like yeah. the hint of subtlety. And the song has felt like sort of the peak of that.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, Paul Thomas Anderson has admitted as much to uh, writing this while listening to a lot of Amy Mann. And in fact, I think he says in the liner notes of the soundtrack that, This movie is basically an adaptation of Amy Mann songs, which is, you know, maybe like uh, simplifying it a bit, but there is a lot in there. If
0: I'm if I'm remembering the story correctly and I didn't look into this before the podcast, but what I remember hearing at the time was that, you know, they were friends and she basically was recording her new album and gave him a copy of the songs and he was listening to it as he wrote the movie. And then instead of releasing that as her next album, it just basically became the soundtrack to this movie, which was Mm -hmm. also something I didn't mention when we were talking about our sort of previous experience with it is that I, like most people in 1999 had that CD and listened to it constantly, Uh, which was funny because if you had that CD, it was like 80% of it was, a new Amy Mann album. And then there were like three super tramp songs at the end.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Good deal. But, I mean, that, that, those songs were super iconic at the time. I mean, I, I remember that being almost like the garden state soundtrack was later or something that like, I remembered right. that that's just hearing the opening songs brought me back to it immediately.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, the, the credits roll over like her cover of the Harry Nilsson song, but, Mm -hmm. Other than that, it's like, you know, and I think there is something like, like you're saying, like when the, when they sing along to the song, it doesn't come out of nowhere. There's all the things you were talking about, Shane. And there's even just the fact that we've been hearing all the Amy Mann songs throughout it. Like if you weren't familiar with that conceit going into it. I think it would, you know, it would make sense that the movie would address the fact that we've been hearing the same voice over and over again.
1: It de- it doesn't make any attempt to sort of place you in the real world in a way, you know, like there's these little like moments that are very self-conscious. I mean, not not the I mean, the actors, I, I think particularly like John C. Riley is so earnest in the performance and there's never kind of like a winking at the camera about what's happening. But the the way like with the kind of exaggerated shots, there's all these zoom in and zoom out. There's like these weird focuses on text. So, like there's obviously a lot of the like biblical references. There's things that you'll catch throughout that don't feel like a naturalist movie at all. And then of course you get to this moment where they're all singing this song that they supposedly all know, except no one's ever really heard before. So it's not like, it's, like <laughs> you know. So so it ends up being know, like it's very very self conscious. Totally, and that that yeah.
0: bit. Uh, I don't know if you guys watched Ted Lasso, but they did that on a recent episode. I think it was even the same oh, no. song uh, that they had all the characters sing along to, like in Magnolia. Oh, really? Yeah. So, I mean, even that scene has become, you know, kind of a, an iconic moment from this movie.
2: Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. More stuff happens.
1: <sighs> I I don't believe it. Uh, it, it was well, I mean, it was so much. I, <laughs> I, I didn't remember it stuff. being this much. I mean, there was some I mean, there's a scene There's just, I mean that like it comes in there's just one punch after the other each each individual five moments of this movie feels like a lifetime. It was so much. And so like I was thinking that that scene with Philip Baker Hall and his wife. Where it starts yeah, with yeah, her yeah. kind of like trying to offer him forgiveness for all his guilty feels, and then at the end she's throwing him out and saying that he deserves to die alone. I remember at that point I was like, I don't know how many more of these scenes I can take where it's just one after the other after the other. Yeah,
2: yeah. Well, I mean that's like, I mean that's like the low point in terms of like the character's morality or whatever. I mean after the show, Philip Baker Hall comes home and tells his wife that he's dying. And also confesses so that he can, you know, presumably die with like a, you know, uh, an easy conscience or whatever that he uh, that he cheated on her several times uh, all the time. And she can forgive him for that. But she asks him about why the daughter won't speak to him. And she... She says that she knows that he molested her, and he says that he can't remember it, you know, maybe because of all the alcohol, or maybe he's just lying because he doesn't want to admit what a piece of shit he is. I love
0: you so much, Rose.
1: I'm not through asking my questions. Why doesn't Claudia talk to you, Jimmy? Why? Because we've, we've, we both don't know. What what do you mean? No, I think you know. Maybe.
2: I don't.
1: Say it, Jimmy.
2: But, uh, I mean, that's like the hardest part of this movie, I think, is, uh, you know, seeing that character make that turn. Because up until then... I mean, you're sort of sympathetic for him. I mean, he's an old man. He's dying. You don't know the reason why. He's estranged from his daughter. But you think maybe it's because she does a lot of drugs and has sort of like isolated herself that way. But that's like the, yeah, that's one of the big turning points in this movie.
0: There's no no, no coming back from that in the conversation. No. But then the frogs happen. Yeah, so well, the
2: frogs, the frogs happening. It's sort of like the it's sort of like the uh, wise up moment, but different. Like it also it also sort of like releases all of the tension once again. But in this way that has like this profound effect on all the action, because, yeah, Philip Seymour Hall, he's getting ready to kill himself. He's going to shoot himself with a gun, you know, but
0: just as didn't, he's not to- for the bow and arrow. That's no. Call.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, it's hard to pull that back with your foot. But just as he's about to do it, a frog falls through the skylight and hits the gun and it goes off and ends up like shooting the TV or something. And so it doesn't kill him. He doesn't get to, you know, get the easy way out. Instead, his house catches on fire and presumably he burns to death, which that doesn't sound fun. And also, I mean, I frogs... totally
0: forgot that his house caught on fire because we never come. Yeah, so I too. actually.
1: Because, <laughs> you know, I was I, I kind of written down that it feels like he has this big admission and then the frogs sort of come in and stop him from from committing suicide. But then nothing else happens. It's sort of like now it's just now he just continues on. But it's not really like that. But yeah, there's well, I mean, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's
0: just like yeah. God intervened. and was like, no, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> if anyone's taking your life, it's me god well it sort of parallels the uh earlier story about the
2: kid who jumps off the building and gets shot because he puts the uh he puts the ammo in the gun so that his parents would shoot each other while they're fighting so essentially he's murdering his parents and then he ends up getting shot by the gun as he sort of goes down mm. it's like god was like
0: fuck you kid <laughs> you know one thing i i love about the frogs. One thing I loved when I saw it then and and rewatching it now is that, you know, it's 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 a weird magical realists kind of thing or, you know, even verging into surrealist it's this absurd mm-hmm. crazy moment but it's never like cute like it's it's instantly gross and like when you see the like bloody specks on the top yeah. of the ambulance and stuff like it's just it, they really lean into like how revolting it would actually be and, uh, if you're this like cleaning
1: off their car and yeah. you have to think like this is going to be like long term consequences for the neighborhood like this, yeah. <laughs> yeah. like people are going to have to be hired to deal with this <laughs>
2: I thought it'd be funny if the WB frog came and did the, like, (laughs) hello, my baby, hello, my honey. But, uh, no, I guess it's not that kind of film.
1: There's there's Um, also this moment where they zoom in to the painting. So, like, you know, Philip Baker Hall's wife leaves. She goes to her daughter's house just right when the frogs start happening. She crashes kind of in, and they kind of embrace on the ground, and then it zooms into this little caption that says, but it did happen really quickly. Which felt like, I mean, this that, again, this is the same kind of device that it uses throughout. Like, trials, like, real clear attention to itself, but then sort of, like, plays with the expectation a bit.
2: Yeah. And then the kid echoes that line after, the the whiz kid or whatever. Oh, sorry. <laughs> I didn't mean to put it like that, whiz kid. <laughs> but, but he... Uh, He says that same line uh, sort of about the uh, possibility of this sort of event, you know, this plague or whatever it is like it it can happen.
0: Oh, but I Uh, I thought I thought that the words in the painting were referring to like the abuse. I think it's referring to both. Okay,
2: I mean, it is referring to the abuse, but then like metatextually, it's like about whatever this. Whatever this mysterious force is, I,
1: I I watched the video of the Roger Ebert review at the time, and he had uh, another reviewer on who didn't like the movie and talked about how absurd that was. And all of a sudden, he you know interrupts her as he does, and it's like, but it did happen, it did happen. <laughs> and, you know, he writes about that interview, like you know, it, it happened eight times in the twentieth century, so it does happen. Right? <laughs>
0: yeah, I I loved uh, it. You know, I I I was reading a bit about how it was divisive for critics at the time, which I I didn't. I wasn't totally aware of, I just remembered people kind of digging it, but like thinking about it now, like I was kind of wondering if I would like the movie at all, if it wasn't for the frogs, like I, maybe that sounds a little harsh, but like if it didn't build to something so bold and so unique and so kind of cathartic, I don't, Mm -hmm. and what we're, what we're left with is just everything that came before that. I don't know how I would feel about the movie, honestly.
2: Yeah, well, it would definitely need to have some sort of, like, more tidy resolution or something, you know, in order to work. This sort of, like, allows it to continue on in a sort of ambiguous sort of way, I feel like, you know. Because it does affect, like, the characters. I mean, obviously, like, Philip Baker Hall doesn't shoot himself. But, like, the uh, the William H. Macy character, he's, like, climbing up the pole to get into his boss's He's going to rob
0: Alfred Molina.
2: Well, he's already robbed Alfred Molina. Now he's going to put the money back because he's realized that he's done a really stupid thing, but the key is broken off in the door and that's where he's crawling up the thing and he gets hit by the frog and he falls to the ground and he busts his teeth. The teeth that he was going to get fixed with the uh with
1: the braces and uh It's like that you know, old was...
0: Twilight Zone episode with the glasses. <laughs>
1: I mean, this is one of just the so many threads that when I saw this, I was like, how I don't know the number of events that are just packed into these sequences, you know, Mm -hmm. but it does. I mean, it does affect every single person. So, like, I got the impression that maybe the daughter wouldn't have let her mother in if it wasn't for the frogs raining down that that changed it. Tom Cruise has to stay overnight because the frogs are there. The I think we didn't even talk about the overdose um, I think it was an overdose that uh, Julianne Morris' characters has, and she's in an ambulance. Mm-hmm. The ambulance gets hit and it flips over uh, when they're, like, kind of, you know, hitting frogs everywhere. So it's, like, every single person has mm-hmm. some kind of, like, basic intervention, I guess by chance. Well, yeah, or or whatever. I mean,
2: I don't know if, like... Paul Thomas Anderson is saying in this movie that there's like a higher power who's intervening or something, but it definitely affects some characters positively and then it affects some characters negatively, you know karmically you might say
0: i don't even really see it as i know there's all the bible stuff leading up to it but like i i just see it as a, like this great absurdity that kind of like yeah levels the playing field for all these characters and forces them to like yeah like you were saying shane i did not even really thought of it in those terms but like yeah like literally like changes how they're starting out the next day like uh, yeah i i just think that it, it you know there are you know things that happen in uh, in real life that are you know completely blindside you and mm-hmm. I feel like in a way this scene in the movie captures that more than any kind of dramatization of the real things that that blindside you in real life sure can do if, if that makes sense I don't know I, I just yeah. I just think it's this great moment I don't necessarily attach like a theological uh, explanation
1: you know i it. i went you know so exodus 8 2 is about god smiting the egyptians for not letting the jews go i don't feel like anyone was like smoten here you know no, yeah. it, feel, it feels like in like intentionally arbitrary like some well, kind of grand says... arbitrariness happens
2: right at least in the version I read it says that he will smite the border so just sort of around you know around everybody you know I did
0: think one one thing that was interesting was that the Jason Robards character who I don't know if he unites all of the characters but he certainly does connect to a lot of them because he produces the game show also mm-hmm. but it seems like they don't show you exactly how it happened but it he dies that night, so it very well could have been like that the moment he died, like the frogs started raining,
2: possibly also the moment where he's given the morphine in the liquid morphine that's the moment that the uh wise up starts playing, so oh, okay, he's definitely his lifeline is connected through the through the movie for sure, yeah, and then. After all of that happens, it sort of wraps itself up. John C. Riley lets Donnie, the quiz kid, go free after he puts the money back. Julianne Moore and Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise has gone to see his dad, and, you know, they've had some sort of something. And, uh, yeah, Julianne Moore and Tom Cruise are sort of, you know, grieving together at the end. Also, John C. Riley goes and sees Claudia, even though she told him to never see him, never see her again. And it seems like they're going to, I don't know, maybe, maybe have some sort of a uh, positive future together. And, uh, and there's like oh, a, oh, and...
1: a minute and a half long shot of a, uh, of a song playing and her staring into the camera, which felt like yeah, the, no. the correct conclusion for this movie. Yeah, for
0: sure. And then she, th- she all... thanks everybody for coming out and she reminds them to, uh, to put their popcorn bags in the re- receptacle <laughs> on the way out.
2: Yeah. And the other, the other thing is uh, the little kid. He's like, "Hey, Dad, don't be so
1: mean to me." And Dad's like, "Go to bed." And again, his dad doesn't care. Like, it's it's the one character that can't be touched in this movie. That that guy sucks. (laughs) No,
2: (laughs) you know what? The frogs missed that guy. (laughs) He needed a fucking frog or two, right? Yeah, right in the kisser.
0: Just like a frog, just hitting him in the groin or something with (laughs) with a comical sound effect.
2: Yeah. And I think that's everything that happens in Magnolia. Sure. So we'll be back after this break. We have the behind the scenes and the trivia. Don't go anywhere.
1: I'm Sandra, and I'm
0: just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me.
1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
2: Welcome back to Rewatchability. We are talking about Magnolia. We're here with Shane Burley and Believe it or not, I have some very tough trivia questions for the both of you. This is just like a like a game show, you know. It's like kids versus the adults. So uh, don't don't wet yourself. If you need to go to the bathroom, that was what the break was for.
0: Too late.
2: <laughs> okay, uh, so I have so many trivia questions because I thought that some of them might uh, get uh, ruined in the uh, well. We talked about the movie, but. Maybe we'll get through all of them. I don't know. Okay, so Henry Gibson's character's name is Thurston Howell. Which classic TV show also featured a character named Thurston Howell?
0: Oh, I think I know. Jam, do you want to give it a shot? Is it uh, Gilligan's Island? It is, yeah. Thurston Howell
2: III was the- The professor uh, or something? The professor, that's right, yeah. Interesting. What does it mean? Yeah, why, does it mean why would he be Paul <laughs> after- Thomas Anderson was watching Gilligan's Island too much? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I thought that was interesting. That
0: is interesting. I didn't know that.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, that character is uh, pretty amazing, and you know Henry Gibson's uh, always great. I will say. I think that we mentioned him in uh, Gremlins too. We mentioned uh, this character. I think.
0: I will say Rated. that I rewatching it now, like. I kind of feel like the supporting characters, like the ones that aren't like totally the focus of the stories do seem like far more interesting in a way. Like Henry Gibson Mm -hmm. is so great. Philip Seymour Hoffman, as we talked about is, is so great. And then April grace as the, uh, interviewer with Tom Cruise is so amazing. Like there's something about all of these like side characters who we don't like totally explore the inner lives of that, uh, just uh yeah it seems like in a way maybe it's because we don't get all of those details that it's it's more tantalizing but
1: uh they they do all feel like fully present though right i mean there's like these these moments where like they because there's so much camera movement going through it particularly at the game show where like there's so much happening on each side of them that it feels like you're kind of thrust right there that you're in partial conversations and like people there there's a lot happening which is part of what it sometimes feels like a full frontal assault you know like there's the music is really intense it's really in the forefront there's all these people coming in walking in and out talking there's tension in almost every scene between at least two people sometimes groups of people so it's a lot it is it is exhausting yeah <laughs> but i mean
0: i you know i i was i was thinking about like how did I mean, this is dumb, but, like, how did adults react to this movie when it came out? Because, like, I, you know, when I saw this when I was, like, 15, I was, you know, eager to meet the movie more than halfway and, like, be assaulted, like you said. But, like, you know, if I was, like, 40 and I've got kids and I'm tired and I go out to the movies, I don't know if I would have the, like, mental bandwidth to... uh to process everything that's thrown at me in this movie. So I could see why some, I could see why, you know, people would be turned off by it. Um.
1: When I, when I first saw it at the end of the movie, when people are kind of getting up to leave, I kind of tried not to look, but a woman had gotten on her knees and was praying and crying in the corner of the theater. And like, and people had gotten up and left during it, during like the frog stuff. And there was like, you know, these really kind of explosive reactions. And I was like, you know, that was when it kind of hit me. I was like, did we just, What was this like, you know, like a historic experience? What What is happening here? But yeah, I mean, I feel Jesus. like pe- there was some of those like responses that people had that were huge. And also the negative responses feel like that. Did you read the, um, the Kevin Smith um, response to it? He had written no. a review. I couldn't find the review, but I had found like little snippets that were like reposted. I'm going to try to pull it up. It was, what did he say? He said um they sent me an academy (laughs) (laughs) they sent me an academy screener for it uh this week i'll never watch it again but i'll keep it i'll keep it right on my desk as a constant reminder that a bloated sense of self-importance is the most unattractive quality in a person or their work and then he said it was a cinematic root canal
2: wow that's brutal coming from the director of the jay and silent bob reboot
0: (laughs) well i remember i think in one of the jay and silent bob movies That came out around that time. I think there was a joke about
1: Magnolia. Magnolia fan, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh. And I
0: remember like not getting it, like, because because I just lived in a bubble where like my three friends and
1: I all love that
0: movie. So I was like, what? I thought (laughs) I thought everyone loves Magnolia. So he actually had like a real grudge against it.
1: Oh yeah, and and, and, you know, like I'll blow it. I still love this movie, but I, you know, I came in and I I think probably just because I'm watching it like this way, but there is. It is not a subtle movie in a lot of ways, um, and it's not – it is incredibly heavy-handed all the way through. And so I, I at least I understand, I think, where some of that response came from, even if I don't really share it.
0: Oh, yeah. 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 No, I, I I, I, totally get it, but
1: uh, – Not from Kevin Smith, I don't hard. get it, but – Yeah.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: I guess that – yeah.
1: The, the auteur behind Tusk. And...
0: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, I, I like, you know, Kevin Smith seems like a nice guy, but it seems like an odd criticism <laughs> coming from him. <laughs> okay, so which
2: movie was the song Wise Up originally written for or was originally supposed to appear in? Oh.
0: Mickey Blue Eyes. That's right. What? Really? <laughs> no. Oh, I'm thinking like
1: Wise Guys, you know? Uh... See, that would have been oh, a coincidence, hey. you know? Just things lined up. Fate lined up. <laughs> you have any uh, idea? Well, it would have been that, it, that, that movie is just coming out then, so it would have been the same year, right? Mickey Blue Eyes? No, the, <laughs> the, the song came out at the same time as the movie, right? It
2: did, yeah, but it was supposed to be used for something else before that. Uh, okay, I'll just tell you. Uh, we've actually mentioned it on the podcast before. It was, it was supposed to be used for the movie Jerry Maguire,
1: Oh, oh wait, uh, was it not used in Jimmy Quarry? No, no, no. Well,
2: originally, Cameron Crowe, he wanted to put the m- song in his movie, and he had heard, like, a demo recording, and he really loved it. So, yeah, he wanted to put it in his movie. But then when the studio version was given to him, he didn't like it as much. He he thought it wasn't as sad, and so he passed and put something else in his movie. And then I think when it came out on DVD, possibly after Magnolia had made it a a huge song, he was like, maybe I should put this fucking song in my movie.
0: (laughs) That would also reinforce my fan theory that at the end of that movie, Jerry Maguire moves to Los Angeles and changes his name to Frank T.J. Mackey.
2: Yeah. It sort of makes sense. They're the same same charisma. (laughs) Do you think Amy Mann was like, this song
1: goes with Tom. (laughs) Did you watch, did you watch her music video that goes along with the movie? No. Yeah. She green screens herself into every major scene in the movie and just kind of sings in the direction of the camera, right? Like right sitting right next to each character. Oh, wow.
0: Oh, wow! I remember like wonder boys did that too with Bob Dylan, like hanging out with Michael (laughs) Douglas. That was a weird trend. I do remember that the song was nominated for the Oscar. And it was the year that the Oscars were like, nobody likes watching these songs. So let's have all of the people who are nominated for best song on like one stage with dividers in between. And we'll have each of them play like 15 seconds of the song and combine it all into one segment. And so like Amy Manson part of uh, Save Me.
1: And it was really weird. Oh, man, Is that what man. people complain about? That there's too many songs in the Oscars, you know, in the four hours yeah. of the Oscars. It's the four songs that really drive the yeah. length of it. <laughs> wow. um, I I thought this movie was nominated for more awards, but it was only nominated for I think song and and um, and Tom Cruise. Maybe or was he nominated for the screenplay too? Maybe he he must have been
2: three nominations. I don't have any more information. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think it was a screenplay, too, but it wasn't nominated for Best Picture. It wasn't nominated for Best Best Director or anything.
2: Wow. Yeah, it was was nominated for Tom Cruise in a supporting role, Best Writing Screenplay directly for the screen, and Best uh, Original Song. Yeah, And it won none of those. But, I mean, like we said, that was, like, 1999. That was the big year. I have another question for you. Which three alumni from the television show... Deadwood appear in this movie.
0: Oh, I know one. One is, is his name Jim Beaver? Yeah. The guy who's like, uh, what's his name? He marries... uh, Molly Parker. Molly Parker. And he's in uh, Breaking Bad, too. That's right. Yeah, he's like the... Yeah.
2: Sells them guns, I think. Do you know who else? Wait, how many are there?
1: Three. Hmm. I thought I was going to have my Magnolia trivia down, too. (laughs) This is tough. Whoa.
0: Okay, well, I mean... Wait, 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 wait. I'm keen to guess.
1: Was Alfred Molina in Deadwood?
2: Alfred Molina was not in Deadwood. Jam, what did you say?
0: No, I just let me think about it for a minute. I feel like I can get it. No, I probably can't. Do you want a hint? Yes.
2: Okay, one works for Powers Booth. This is his character. Okay. Yeah. Um, He's his like right hand man.
0: Yeah, who was that guy?
2: Yeah, okay. I don't, I don't I'm gonna know. tell you. Just it was Ricky me. J.
0: Oh of course. What am I thinking? It was Ricky <laughs> J was his Yeah. I was thinking of that guy who like Gets like the plague or whatever? Who's that, that <laughs> character actor? Oh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> yes, of course. What am I thinking? Ricky Jay is in Deadwood. Yeah. yeah. Who's the th- Who's the third one? The third one
2: is Cleo King, who plays Marcy, the woman that John C. Riley uh, handcuffs to the couch. And she plays Aunt Lou, who is George Hearst's assistant. Uh, oh
0: and who's actually God.
2: based yes. on a real historical character as well. Wow. And she, I mean,. She's, She's awesome. really good. She's really great in Deadwood, yeah. She's great in this scene as well, uh in the one scene that she has. She's pretty amazing. Yeah, no, for sure. That's uh that's all I have for trivia questions. You guys did uh not too shabby. The Deadwood one was hard. Um though you should have gotten uh Ricky Jay. But uh, I know,
0: yeah, what was that? I he's my old friend from when he was eating <laughs> soup that time. I was reading that book about there's a book specifically about like the year 1999 and how it's a great movie year. I by I think Brian Rafferty mm-hmm. is the author's name. So I went back and I was reading the chapter about Magnolia, and he was he was saying that uh, uh, April Grace, who plays, is it Guinevere the reporter, the mm-hmm. interviewer. Uh, how she when she showed up to like the first table read like things were so secretive she didn't even know who she was acting opposite who was playing frank and then like they said tom cruise basically pulled in on his motorcycle and was tom cruise and it was and she was you know one of the lesser known people at you know, as part of the cast and she was feeling like really nervous about it. And she said she was sitting there feeling uh, out of place and Fiona Apple came up to her and leaned over and whispered, don't be nervous. Uh, Paul thinks you're fucking awesome. It's all he's been talking about.
1: So, and instantly made her feel better. Yeah. Thanks Fiona Apple. (laughs) You read about this, like the, the sort of tension over Tom Cruise in the marketing Like the studio really wanted to like make this a Tom Cruise movie, they're going to put him on the cover of all the posters, and he's going to be the center of the trailer. And so,
0: (laughs) is there a mountainside Frank TJ Mackey could hang off of (laughs) for the trailer?
1: (laughs) I mean, like they had to like fight to make this not a Tom Cruise movie, sort of, which seemed like a funny thing as coming in 1999 when he's probably the biggest he ever was then. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean, that must have been a pretty hard fight. But yeah, they did like I mean, they submitted him only for best supporting actor. But it does it does still feel like it is caught in Tom Cruise's gravity. And it's hard not to feel like I mean, even though his story isn't the most important, it's hard not to like, have his character like at the in the back of your mind, you know, because he's Tom Cruise. You
0: know. I I was reading in that book too that uh he was kind of reticent to take on the role like he want he actively like sought out Paul Thomas Anderson mm-hmm. because he loved Boogie Nights but then he was iffy about the part because it's so you know gross and toxic and you know a far cry from. Uh, you know top gun and stuff but uh he but he also one thing i didn't know about him certainly was that he had a similarly contentious relationship with his own father yeah yeah and like had actually had like a similar scene where his father was dying and he went to his deathbed and and like his father specifically told him like i will see you on my deathbed as long as like you don't talk about as long as we don't talk about the past and so like basically the scene in this movie he had lived and he said he said paul thomas anderson like are you sure like you didn't write this because this happened to me and he's like no i just wrote it
2: it's just a coincidence Mm. (laughs)
0: well also it said philip baker hall was in a a storm where it rained frogs Mm -hmm. unbeknownst to uh paul thomas anderson
1: so the coincidences abound the, the Tom Cruise performance really is as stunning uh, in the second half, you know. I think particularly when it starts to break down at the stage, when he's unable to finish the kind of speech he had. He's having people flip back and forth through the book. He flips the table and then just tries to keep going. Um, I mean, those were, I felt like, you know, it was, I know that all the scenes that were, like, captured for marketing and stuff were the big moments of him doing that, kind of jumping around without his clothes on and stuff. But it was actually that, that later stuff where he was just kind of tripping over his words that seemed to be the most impressive.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I I mean, he's great when he he gets disarmed a little bit, you know? I mean, I think it's pretty easy for him to
0: play, like, a charismatic asshole for some reason. (laughs) But, uh... yeah, and uh, the the scene where, like, he's, you know, his story is first being sort of chipped away by the journalists, and, like, he, he kind of, like, you know, recalibrates his lie, and, like, you can see him, like, forming the thoughts that, as he tries to like gaslight her about his contrived backstory. I, I I love that whole yeah, he's fantastic in this movie.
2: Uh, yeah, he is he's really good. So Paul Thomas Anderson, after the success of Boogie Nights, he was basically given a blank check by New Line Cinema. They said that they would bankroll whatever he came up with. And he had started coming up with like the imagery and some of the storylines for this movie while he was editing Boogie Nights And he wrote the script over, like, a week at William H. Macy's cabin, and he he got so much done because he was afraid to go outside because he saw a snake.
1: Yeah, I I read (laughs) that he actually hid inside for about a week, uh, you know, peeking out to see if a snake was there.
2: Yeah, which (laughs) I, I... that that would be a great service for, like, uh, writers, people with writer's block, be like, just, like, yeah. deliver a snake outside their door and then uh, for however long they need to complete their manuscript or whatever. You know, it's a service that we
0: provide. That's how Indiana Jones wrote his screenplay. <laughs> Sounds
1: like the, the quiz kid's dad.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no,
2: the trick is to abuse them
0: in little ways, you know? <laughs> Uh, that way the know, past
1: read... will catch up to you years later. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I, no. read,
0: I read in that same book, uh, and I should mention the name of it, because it is uh, quite a good book. It's Best Movie Year Ever, How 1999 Blew Up the Big Screen. They mentioned that that Paul Thomas Anderson, I don't know if it was after he started writing the script or whatever, Like he thought maybe he would do just a small movie after mm-hmm. Boogie Nights. And then he said he went out to dinner with Warren Beatty. Mm-hmm. Who wanted to meet with them, and he said he'd go to dinner with Warren Beatty as long as they went to a restaurant and not a house. Because he said, if I'm going to eat with Warren Beatty, I want everyone to see it. And he said they were out at dinner, and Francis Ford Coppola came up to him, mm. and they were talking. and And Francis Ford Coppola said, "Whatever you're going to do next, make it the biggest movie you can." He's like, because you know they're going to give you anything you want, and that's never going to happen again. So like, wow. think of the biggest thing you can do. And do that, and uh, and so that's yeah, what, pretty much what he did because of Francis right. Ford Coppola.
2: I didn't, I didn't hear the Francis Ford Coppola part of that story, but uh, okay. yeah, I mean, basically, he had all the. All the money and all the control. And so yeah, it started as a sort of intimate thing. There's also um a documentary, a behind the scenes documentary. I don't know if you guys saw it called uh That Moment.
1: I watched part of that. I watched like you know like twenty or thirty minutes, dotted through it. Um like where yeah. they're showing he showed network on set and showed ordinary people and a couple of things. Mm. Um What I found
2: enraging was how young he is. Right? <laughs> <laughs> he's like he's like this like 20 something year old in like this big baggy shirt that he hasn't tucked in and he's wearing like sneakers and you're like wow <laughs> he's like bossing around philip seymour or philip baker hall it's like
1: who whose kid is this i mean obviously it's a it's a pretty solid picture at one point they talked about burt reynolds doing the uh the earl character but he refused to do it did you do you read any of the the burt reynolds feuding on this no i didn't yeah, I guess he was real pissed about uh, the way Boogie Nights turned out. He didn't like Paul. Uh, said they got in fights the whole time, and uh, he said he would do it over his dead body. I guess there was a, there must. Have, I think there was a few people that were discussed to do the Earl character. Yeah, um, well, I think I Warren Beatty was one of them.
2: Jason Robards was cast, and then he had to drop out because he had a staph infection. And so they talked to George C. Scott about taking that part, but Scott wasn't interested. And then- George uh, C.
0: Scott, who just a few years earlier played an anthropomorphic (laughs) cloud of pot smoke in a PSA (laughs) against drugs, but he said no to
1: Magnolia. Well, didn't he insult the script, say that the writing was terrible? Yeah, I think so. That he had tossed it across the room, like, this this guy can't write. This is going to be a terrible movie. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and this then, is no
0: day of the dolphin. <laughs> <laughs>
2: you got him there, but eventually Jason Robards came back, and of course this was his final role. Uh, he passed on uh, shortly after, and it seems like a very like poignant performance, being like you know this actor who's kind of saying goodbye uh, in a few different ways. Um, yeah, it's really good. He wrote a lot of the roles specifically for the cast members like they were people they'd worked with in boogie nights or heart eight so like john c riley he wrote specifically for him and john c riley uh he requested that he have something different than his other characters because he was playing a lot of heavies and uh man children so he wanted uh he wanted uh he asked paul thomas anderson if he could fall in love with a girl so (laughs) that's uh that's what happened (laughs) and uh yeah
1: I, I, he they are really good and like their scenes together are, are feel in a way kind of uncomplicated compared to some of the other ones. Um, and what did you think about it?
2: Well, I mean, John C. Raleigh is just such an interesting actor because I think there are a lot of moments where he does seem sinister, you know, because he is the cop, he is the authority figure. I mean, she has drugs that she just frantically hid from him and you know also at several points in this movie he's sort of positioned as like as like the person who either can or may not like withhold mercy or who will bring you to jail or 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 maybe let you go but he he really plays both sides of that i mean he's he's so goofy and lovable uh, when he's not a big scary dude i don't know it 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 definitely it's a it's a very compelling scene to watch. I mean, intellectually I'm like, okay, yeah, I mean, he's a bad cop. I mean, yeah, I, I think the un- movie knows that.
0: I was unclear about like how the movie wanted us to view his policing.
1: Yeah. I I, I kind of felt the same question about Tom Cruise in a way. You know, like there seemed to be like the, the the characters, I don't want to say, like, let off the hook, but they're forgiven very easily and very quickly. Like, we're kind of told that they're, you know, these are very human things. And so we kind of give them a pass, even when some of the things aren't that passable, like the Philip Baker Hall character. Right, right. Yeah.
2: Well, I don't think we're supposed to give him a pass. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, like he actually was smotin'. Yeah. Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I, I do think, like, yeah... I, Partly because I think maybe the performances are the strongest, or or maybe because like it's just how well they're written. But I think, you know, some of the parts in this movie, some of the characterizations do feel more like sketched out or like rough than others. They don't feel quite as like fully fleshed out. And like mm-hmm. when you get to the end of it, I think like two of the strongest characters, two of the characters that we feel we've kind of investigated the most are like this guy who you know whose job is to spew this misogynistic awfulness into the world and you know con these terrible men out of their money and also this guy who you know at the at a late juncture in the movie admits that he sexually abused his daughter or or basically does and they're you know kind of kind of the the two characters that i i kind of feel you know Feel the most lived in, or or it feels like the movie kind of gets the most, and and it does feel a little uncomfortable that the the two most awful people are the are the ones that that feel the truest. I don't know
1: if that was by design or not. When when Tom Cruise is like right before he's being interviewed, he has his his session. He's supposed to be doing is how to fake being a nice and caring person. I think that's literally like the, the headline. But I, I feel like sort of what the questioning is doing is asking or kind of presenting that he's actually faking not being a caring person. That was sort of like the, the, the lesson I walked away with it because what Uh they unveil there is this thing about actually he did what few people even have the opportunity to do, which is like care for their parent as they die and then be kind of alone and be on their own and have to take that responsibility, which is a profound reveal. If what you're doing is faking being caring and nice, or that's what like your job is about. And so I feel like that that was in a way that that was letting him off the hook. It was sort of like saying uh, actually these stories are much deeper and so there's like a common thread there. Which you know which I, I mean it's fine I think that's a that's a key point of the movie but it also does feel that mo- a, a little bit like it's just an easy out for Tom Cruise.
0: Yeah, it's it's hard because like you know like we've said he is so good in it. But I yeah, it it's it's tough to say. Like I you know if if they were to focus on like one or two characters, if they were to focus on sort of one story in this movie, which one do you think they would have picked?: uh, If the studio came back to Paul Thomas Anderson and said, "You can only do one. <laughs> which is the one story that best embodies magnolia? Or well, is that I think possible.
2: I mean, I think it would have to be the Tom Cruise, Jason Robards thing. I mean, that's sort of the, the like, thread that goes through it all. I don't know. I mean, I find Philip Baker Hall the most compelling character, but, um,
1: yeah. Yeah, I mean, I probably would say the Philip Baker Hall character, but that might just be because, you know, the suicide was stopped by the frog. That's kind of the iconic, <laughs> artificial healing <laughs> shot, you know? Um... But it also it is the most kind of profound harm that, you know, like harm from the past. So if it's talking about people's past and there's so many of these lines that are kind of literally, sometimes literally looking at the camera and saying them about the past haunting us, that feels like the most haunting past in a way.
0: That was a, the other weird thing. I didn't really know. It's not like it's a big deal, but there was an article about Paul Thomas Anderson's youth and how he's kind of like, doesn't talk about where he came from right like like there, it was was really long and complicated but it was it, it kind of began with like uh this woman that was like his old teacher and was talking about like you know the kids he used to play with and all but he doesn't keep in touch with any of them and it said that she like reached out to his people or something when uh, Boogie Nights came out and said, "Oh, we're all so proud of him here. Like, you know, tell him we'd love for him to come back sometime and and you know, pay us a visit." And got the response that was like, "Paul doesn't come back" or something like that. Whoa. And and the article was kind of like building on that idea and being like, "Hey, like all of his movies have some kind of elements of like characters." remaking themselves and like running away from their pasts in some way Uh, just something i hadn't really thought about in those terms so like i thinking about that and the tom cruise character like obviously he's not you know peddling the things tom cruise is but like i think that character is more you know autobiographical than uh than you might think i mean all of these characters kind of like feel like Maybe part of the reason why they don't all feel like, you know, flesh and blood people or they feel kind of like thinly drawn is because they all represent different parts of uh, of Paul Thomas Anderson in a way.
2: I think that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, like the game show kid, the, uh, yeah, the, the Tom Cruise visiting his dad uh, as he's dying. That also happened to Paul Thomas <laughs> the Anderson. The Coke <laughs> fiend. <laughs> the Coke fiend. Yeah, uh, yeah
0: right. it... it yeah, no, I, yeah, I, yeah I, well, let's talk about the Orlando Jones thing, because that was the okay. other thing that really stood out to me now that didn't when I was a kid, because I think I was just so wowed by the whole thing, I wasn't noticing uh, just how uh, weird it is that they drop the thread of, of the murder.
2: Yeah, it, uh, d- it. usually it seems like something to focus on in a movie, but uh, no, they don't, they don't really they, they follow it for a bit there's like a scene in the police room the john c rally character listens to the little kid rap about it and uh but then it just sort of like goes by the wayside and it never gets solved so what's where does Orlando Jones come in
1: I thought that there would be more of that about that because the opening sequence is about sort of like crimes and people dying so I thought that there was going to be some kind of right. coincidence that it might be subtle but it would be there but I kind of like pay pretty close attention to it. I didn't see any reference to it in like the last third of the movie. No, I don't think there is at all.
0: No, you just, the kid comes back a bit, but other than that, no, it was from what I've read online and you can see some of the deleted scenes with Orlando Jones, but Orlando Jones was playing the character named worm. Right. Who's, who's referenced in, in like the rap that the kid does. And I mm-hmm. think it was that he was the kid's dad and okay. he, and was the son of the woman who uh, the dead body is found in her apartment. Mm-hmm. And and then – and they have some scenes, uh, the, the kid and Orlando Jones. You see him at one point. You just see like his legs as he like goes to get the kid at one mm-hmm. point. Um, but then at the end of the movie, after the frog thing, like that prompts the – grandmother to confess that like the guy in the closet was her uh husband who like was abusive to her kids so she killed him right um you know which which is is more abuse which we don't necessarily need more (laughs) but (laughs) they have enough of this yeah but it's weird that like they left so much of it in but then didn't go back to it at all
1: yeah you think they would cut the whole kid in general uh, those are those are good interactions, though. I, I you know would probably miss them to have them gone, but they do feel just disconnected, like a piece of another movie. Yeah.
0: yeah, and I mean it's also weird to like look back at it now and be like, you know, it's a it's a movie about like all of these different people in Los Angeles, but they're all white. <laughs> and it's like, well, we have one black character and we cut him out, <laughs> like other than the the April Grace character, yeah. but again, she's you know kind of there ultimately to focus on the Tom Cruise so yeah I, I mean I think looking back at it now that certainly you know if the movie were released today that it would not be immune from that criticism I don't think no
2: okay well let's let's uh go around the uh triangle and uh say what we thought about Magnolia on the rewatch Shane why don't you begin
1: yeah, I mean like I you know, I threw up objections uh over the course of the podcast. But no, I mean I love this movie. I loved it watching it again. Um you know, it it's obviously it's a, a it's a heavy handed movie. Um uh, and when I was talking with my wife about this, she made the the comment of like, you know, don't you feel like it kind of earns its melodrama a bit? And I actually that's is kind of how I felt about yeah. it. I I feel like the length of it, um, the fact that you commit for that long that you actually do kind of slowly get to know the characters, they don't they, the, the dialogue does feel uh, not natural, but it feels normal in its space. Like it feels like it commits to its own kind of movie space and I kind of buy it and buy into it. And because it it kind of knows that it's making itself obvious, I think it kind of it kind of revels in it like with the little like gags, the little text boxes and things like that. Um, it ends up kind of setting you in the space for it. Um, and so, and I think it did it a lot better than a lot of movies came later that tried to do this profound interconnection thing and didn't quite master it or were or too serious and didn't kind of have Because, like, we didn't talk about this, but there's a lot of really funny things in the movie. Like, do you remember the dog eating the morphine pills and then gets carried out? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember watching that and being like, so is this a dog? No one cares about-
0: I also love the part where William H. Macy crashes his car into the convenience store and, like, someone runs over and goes, it's Quiz Kid Donnie Smith.
1: <laughs> <laughs> and, like, the, but also the earnestness of it. You know, there's so many of these things where they talk about how they deserve love and things, which are, are something that I think in less capable hands would have been really hackneyed, but actually came across really sincere um, and endearing. So, yeah, I, I think it's very rewatchable, though. I don't know if I'll rewatch it soon. It, I felt totally drained after three hours of this movie where every scene just felt like a emotional battering ram. So I'll, I'll probably have to, I don't know, drink some protein <clears throat> first or something. Uh,
0: okay. Okay. What about you, J.M.? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I still like this movie quite a bit. I, I mean, it really goes for it. Like you said, it's so earnest. It's hard to like, you know, even criticize it because it's, it's, wears its heart on its sleeve it's like everything it's the most movie so and it's such a big swing uh i mean i i do think there are uh you know things i don't love about it i you know one thing that cropped up for me in the ensuing years was like you know, seeing more of like its influences, like stylistically, you know, his early movies are so, you know, Scorsese like. And mm-hmm. then there's also uh, you know, I, I don't think I'd seen any of those sort of similar Robert Altman movies where it's a like big cast of characters like Nashville or or shortcuts, which, which mm-hmm. this is a lot of like. So I yeah, I think, you know, certainly seeing it and just thinking of this wholly original, you know, crazy thing, that I I don't have that reaction to it anymore. You know, one thing I appreciated about it more now watching it was, you know, like we said, like it's so dense and so much happens and it's so crazy, but also like the actual like, uh, time period, uh, it it takes place in is it's such a short amount of time. And I, I love that. Like it's a long movie set in such a, sh- uh, sh- such a small space of time. And it really has that feeling of like a day passing, like when mm-hmm. it starts to rain and then it's just raining and all the characters lives. And then like the night comes and then, you know, the weather clears up. Like you feel like you're moving through uh, this, this day and evening right. with these characters. And I kind of love the the feel of that. We didn't really talk about like his later movies, but like I, I do, you know, as as much as I like this movie, and and do think that you know, uh, or rather, I, I I do think that it borrows heavily from a lot of other things. It feels like it's a movie that's trying to be something, and I do like that his later movies kind of just like found found a different groove that mm-hmm. that's uh, that had just just kind of have a. A more relaxed vibe. I don't know. Maybe that's just because I am getting older as his, as he gets older. But yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, it's magnolia. I can't. I can't not like. I can't not enjoy it because. Well, maybe "enjoy" is the wrong word because it was a barrage of sadness and misery. But, uh, (laughs) no,
1: and it it feels so of its time, like, uh, I I wrote mm -hmm. that about a bunch of times because it does feel like the kind of the, there was a lot of movies that did this, like reaffirm the kind of beauty of the mundane and stuff. And I kind of thought of like those, like, um, montages in American beauty and stuff that were like really set the tone of that year about a lot of these things, um, uh, but also like it, compared it to like the later movies, this feels like utopian almost like it, it's, it's this upbeat, positive thing versus these really kind of intense, dark, complicated movies that came later.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I mean, like it, at its core, it's about like families and, you know, and, and just like, yeah, dealing with life. Uh, and the other thing about talking about it being of its time and, and being this 99 movie, uh, you know, in that book I was reading, it's the last chapter. And I think, you know, a big part of why it resonated at the time, especially the frog thing was like this 99 was, we kind of forget about this because it seems so dumb in retrospect, but it was a year where we were all gearing up for this like promised apocalypse where like, Mm -hmm. you know, basically Skynet was going to happen as soon as, you know, it hit midnight on New Year's Eve. So like, you know, it, it, it didn't just come out of nowhere. Like that ending also tapped into this kind of collective unconscious, uh, feeling and anxiety we were all sort of having that year. Uh, so yeah, I don't know. There's just something about it that, uh, that's, that remains, uh, both modern, but also, yeah, like so distinctly 1999. Um, and also I love movies that, that take, uh, a single, you know, performer and have that be like the narrative or the uh, musical backbone of the movie. And, and, uh, and the Amy Mann songs are great. Uh, What about you, Rob?
2: Yeah. I also thought it was rewatchable. I mean, there's just so many amazing performances in this movie. And I think that's what I love the most about Paul Thomas Anderson's films is that they showcase these actors doing their best work, you know, Yes, everybody's so great here. Like Philip Seymour Hoffman's so wonderful, and William H Macy. He gets to play all these like really wonderful uh, notes that uh, he's great at. And uh, yeah, I, is it a long movie? Yeah, yeah, it is a long movie. But I, you know, kind of like, uh, kind of like it's melodrama. I think it sort of earns it as well. You could definitely cut some parts out, but I, I almost feel like. I wouldn't want to upset the balance, you know, and even like the stuff that isn't wrapped up, it, it lends like a little bit of like inexplicableness to it. That sort of goes well with the raining frogs and everybody's singing along to a song that nobody's heard yet. So yeah, I think it's totally rewatchable. Again, I, Don't know when the next time I would watch this would be because it is a very, uh, yeah, it's a draining movie. Though there is a lot of fun stuff along the way. um, But, yeah, totally rewatchable. Have you guys, did you guys watch the trailer for the new Paul Thomas Anderson movie? uh, Skittles Calzone? yeah that's yeah. right
1: i did i did just watch the trailer for it yeah yeah i mean i feel like you know maybe, maybe it's coming out of the pandemic that that made it feel a little bit relevant like jam was saying that we had kind of a mm. past apocalypse we're waiting for and now what we're leaving one maybe or or it's just continuing it's continuing year after year it's supposed to be two months now oh, it'll just be. it's just constantly
0: raining frogs every day non-stop
1: <laughs> day
2: 500 of the frog rain <laughs> Yeah, well, that's Rewatchability for this week. Thanks, Shane, for joining us. Yeah, thank you. Where can people
1: find you on the internet? Well, you can find me on Twitter. That's how I found uh, Rob on here, at uh, Shane Shane underscore Burley one uh, over at Twitter. And I'll have a bunch of articles and stuff coming out soon and a new book coming out early next year. But I'm not, I can't announce the name yet, but it'll be out early next year.
2: Is it about fascism?
1: It is about
0: something similar, yeah.
2: Okay, okay, all right.
0: We should all have right. picked a more uh, fascistic director to talk about, like David Fincher or
1: something. Oh, didn't <laughs> you? Yeah. Well, this is a piece of trivia I found. Did you see Paul Thomas Anderson with uh, cancer on David Fincher? No. Whoa. Oh, yeah, yeah. This is because he didn't like the jokes about cancer in Fight Club. Oh, wow. Yeah, he was wow. real mad about that.
0: So he, he put a hex on him.
1: <laughs> yeah. He said, yeah, have a future. So if there's any future cancer, it'll be on him. Wow. Well,
2: Shane, maybe you'll come back on when your uh, new book is about to be released. And- oh, yeah. We'd
1: love to come on anytime.
2: Awesome. So you can find Rewatchability on Apple Podcasts. You can subscribe there and leave a review. You can listen to us basically anywhere, I think. If you want to request a movie for us to watch, you can do that at rewatchability at com or on our website, rewatchability.com. There's a speak pipe thing. You can leave a little message there. And we're on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and, uh, yeah, all of that stuff. Till next week, uh, try uh, check the weather before you go outside. Uh